Hey guys, it's Dan from the Batchat Podcast. We're running our tipping competition again. That's right. Last year we had huge prizes. I think we gave away thousands of dollars. This year it's going to be even better. You have to be a patron though, so head to backchatpodcast.com.au. You can sign up as a patron there. You get access to early episodes and also our merch. It's pretty good. We love our pets, but when the floor is covered in fur, that's harder to love. Eufy X10 Pro Omni Robot Vacuum has powerful 8,000 PA suction to make hair vanish from floors in just one pass. Plus, the roller brush has automatic detangling for easy hands-free maintenance. Want to know more? Go to eufy.com, that's E-U-F-Y.com, and discover X10 Pro Omni, the best-in-class all-in-one robot vacuum for only $799. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Ladies and gentlemen, Will Schofield here. I'll be your host this evening, this afternoon, this morning, whenever you're listening or watching to our latest run of December programming. This week, we have not just footy. That's right, here at Backchat Studios, Backchat Podcast, we don't just talk about footy. We've got lots of lovely other athletes too, starting with this one. Bonnie Hancock, she kayaked around Australia, fastest to ever do it, in fact. Well... Kayaking around Australia, you might think there'd be some sharks. Well, there was, but there were some crocodiles too. You said when you left, uh, your biggest fear maybe was was crocodiles. Um, yeah. Any? No, I, I know. How did you go with them? Sometimes like, did I you just, learn to love them? Or? Oh no, 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 no. Right, right. I, I actually, you know what though, I respect them because they left me alone. So we, I feel like we have a mutual respect. I absolutely feel they don't respect me at all. But <laughs> I would love to go to that crocosaurus park and jump in the lake it's like a clear kind of um cage thing in the water where you see them right up close i would love to do that because i have such an appreciation for them as an animal and as a an absolute predator that they are um the scariest moment of the whole trip was in the kimberley in the northern territory i think it was I'm trying to think how far i'd done that day almost 100k and there's eddies up there. So off of the islands, there's these circular whirlpools at work. I never believed in it before. It kind of makes me believe in the Bermuda Triangle. These literally currents that work their way around and around in the middle of the ocean. The catamaran got stuck in an eddy. So this catamaran is doing these circles like, I don't know, 50 metres in diameter around right. and around in the ocean. Wow. It's dark by now. So it was in this six hours at night time. And... At this stage, the people on Bonnie Watch had the torches out to the side looking for the crocs, which awesome. is terrifying in itself. I've got like Eminem blasting in my ears because it's not time for Taylor Swift. Lose yourself. There. It's literally probably, <laughs> hey, do, that do, or do, Stormzy, do. either one of them. They Stormzy, got me yes. Stormzy the best. Um, going around. So they're like, jump in and follow us. So I'm 100K in doing circles in the middle of the ocean and I'm like, this is ridiculous. I'm, what are we doing? They said, we can't break the current, but don't go anywhere. All of a sudden, about five minutes later, they yelled out, stay close. So I was like, okay, I don't know what that means. Again, if it might be the current, I, s I stayed super close. They broke the current. I paddled for another 20 minutes. After 20 minutes, they gestured onto the boat and said, again, hop on the boat. And they told me one week later, because I was only halfway through the Kimberley, I still had a week of paddling in the most crocodile infested place that when I was going around and around in circle, they'd shone the torch out to the side and seen a large crocodile off to the side looking at me. And 20 minutes later when they were searching, they saw it again and it was following. And that's when they got me on the boat. Been cruising behind you. Cruising behind and three times they saw crocodiles around me. So just that feeling of how close it was 10 metres away watching, 
I feel incredibly lucky to get, and people always say, would you do this again? I wouldn't because it was like running the gauntlet and you finish and you feel so thankful just to be safe. Right. Yeah, it was incredibly scary. Let's stay right in the ultra-athlete style of things. Jack Thompson's an ultra-cyclist. Bonnie Hancock, she was a kayaker, Jack, cyclist. He was in China riding around God knows what, and the Chinese government wanted a little chat to Jack about what he was doing in the country. I will say one time in China I was arrested. So I, they thought I was a spy on the Tibetan border. And like literally in the middle of China. And I ended up in like a lockup in China for a, for a little while. And that's probably a story for another potty, but... No, um, like, no, 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 <laughs> no. It's a story for right now. You don't get to move on. That here, mate. <laughs> Drop that on you us. can't just be dropping I spent a bit of time in lockup in China. Let's <laughs> we'll speak later about that. <laughs> so basically what happened, right, I was riding from central China down into Laos. And like we're, I was on, I was alone, but I was like close to the Tibetan border. And in China, every night when you check into a hotel, they basically like keep a track of your passport, where you've been. They, they you know, they, they keep a track of where you're at as a foreigner. And I arrived in this one town. I forget the name of it now, um, but it was like an ancient city. And so I'd arrived there quite early. I'd come early and I'd ridden there, and I wanted to go and have a bit of a look around. And when I got there, the, the lady at the hotel. It was like she knew I was coming even though I hadn't booked. And she said, oh, we're going to take you down to the police station because you've got to check in. And, like, you've got to imagine this is all done on a translation. It's like I'm not talking Chinese. She's not talking English. So it's all a bit broken. So I've gone down to the local police station and they've got me and they've sort of grabbed me. And I'm wearing, like, a Nike singlet and a little pair of running shorts because that's the only clothes that I take when I'm doing, like, a multi-day trip on, on bare bones. And they've, they've put me into a into a little cell and um, sort of jabbering to me in Chinese and I'm obviously not understanding. And because I'm in this little concrete sort of room, my phone's not working, so I've got no reception. I, I can't translate anything. And I was really lucky because the police chief, his wife, was happened to be an English teacher at a school nearby. And so he got her on the phone, on his phone, she was asking me, like, what are you doing here? We you know you've got the camera. Like, and I was like, I'm literally just riding from central China to Laos. I'm here, like, just you know, it's essentially a holiday. I'm not working. I'm not doing anything dodgy. And eventually they let me off. And so I'd been interrogated for a couple of hours there. And I think the chief of police felt bad, right? And so as I got out of the cell, he's written to me on his phone. I've written to him first. I said, like, where can I get food? Because at this stage, I'm starving. And he's, he's written back to his phone, like, would you like to join me for dinner? And I was like, like, you know, he's just arrested me. Now he's invited me for dinner. So this is where the story gets, like, super crazy. So I said, okay, like, you know, when in Rome, when in China. So I ended up, so I'm sitting in the police station and this has all happened quite quickly. It's the end of the day. Um, a four-wheel drive rocked up right out the front. He sort of signaled for me to go and jump in the, in the back seat. And I get in the back seat, and I'm the only one in there, and there's these two boxes, right? So, like, the boxes are sort of yay big, and they're wrapped heavily in tape. And suddenly, like, my mind just, like, my stomach started to sink. I was like, all right, so they're not being able to get me on like a spy charge. They're going to try and dupe me up here as like a drug trafficker. So like we're literally hammering around the back streets of China in the city and I'm, I'm like, fuck, what's going on here? And um, we get down this little alleyway and like the car stops and there's this little red door. I, I, I can still picture it. And he like, signals for me to get out of the car and like to grab the packets. And I'm like, there's no way in hell I'm touching those packets because I don't want my fingerprints on them. Like, I'd already like done the full CSI scan of the situation. And anyway, so I like opened the door for him to like get the stuff out of the car and go upstairs. So he's grabbed them, gone upstairs. We walked up the stairs, and at the top there's like this group of people sitting around a table eating dinner. I was like, this is weird. Anyway, he started ripping open the boxes and I'm like, fuck, I'm waiting for everything just to go everywhere. And he's pulled out two six-packs of Belgian beers. Oh. <laughs> and he's written into his app, 
in, in China, we prefer the Belgian beers to the Chinese beers. <laughs> <laughs> so we ended up having dinner and going to karaoke together. <laughs> oh, that is epic. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> Tell it me was such a loose mate. story. Tell me your best mates with the Chinese chief of police now. <laughs> yeah. I did. I had him on. I had him as a contact save, but I've lost him. I've like tried to find him so many times. I don't have him in there. <laughs> oh, that is an epic story. Ever wondered what it's like to eat a cheeseburger with Kobe Bryant? Well, Blair Evans did that. Can you explain what the Olympic Village is? Like, it's it, it's is it just like a massive group of athletes from all around the, the world in one area, yeah. and you're eating in the same places? You, what what is it? What's the Olympic Village? It's like a small. Sims, I guess. Yes. You're all placed into this big apartment complex and every country has their own apartments. Um, and I think there's some weird thing that you have to bid to get closest to the dining hall because it's a long walk. If you are on the other side of the village trying to get to the dining hall, it's like a 3K round right. trip. So Aussie was always lucky that we were pretty close to everything, but – you know, you have eight people in one apartment. You're sharing a room with two or three people. The food hall is just a free-for-all. There's tables, food, macas, everything that you could want. There's vending machines full of Coke and Sprite and Powerade. And it's just, it's a dream. Like you just walk in there and you never want to leave. That's what they call, um, obviously for athletic reasons as well, but they call it the post-Olympic depression because for a month of your life, everything is on a silver platter right. and there's so much fun and there's so much access to all these different experiences and opportunities when you're at an Olympic Games that when you come out of there and you just go back to normal life, it's like this come down that you experience that's just like, what do I do now? Is there decent status as a swimming group that you're the first week? And, uh, you know, I, and again, like I'm a massive Olympic Games nuffy, so yeah. like I'll just – Watch forever, and I'm an like I used to run, so I always used to think, "Geez, you must be pissed off racing like <laughs> day 13 of the Olympics while all the swimmers are clowning around because they, <laughs> yeah. they don't have any." Like, are you guys just like, is it a part? Like, is there parties? Like, is it is it something like once swimming finishes first week, athletes are just sitting around for that first week, going, "Well, da, 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 they're having their waters and stuff." Do swimmers then turn into party mode? We are the most loved team in that first week people we come back from swimming and everyone's like you guys are the best in yes. that second week they're like get out <laughs> <laughs> and it changed oh i didn't no it wouldn't have changed 2012 was a free-for-all like that second week we were coming back at all times of the morning there was no curfew because london was quite safe um yes. in rio it was a little bit different being a little bit more dangerous we had curfews and we had to check in and all those sorts of things so yes. Yeah, we were the most hated team in that second week because some sports didn't even start until the second week. Yeah. But they wouldn't move into the village until that second week. Right. So there's Coppin, you're having the best time of your lives. Yeah. Your, your competition's done, thing you've built up for four years. Yeah. You're and either won starting. or you've lost, whatever it is, but it's happened. Yeah. And they're like, yeah, I can't wait for my race in three days' time. Yeah. Shut the fuck up. Please. Well, we had the best time because obviously we finish and then we just get to go support Every yeah. other sport, we get tickets to whatever we want and we just get to immerse ourselves in the whole Olympic experience, which we miss the opening ceremony every single mm. competition because we are on the first day or the first week. So we do miss out on some things, but swimmers are very lucky that <laughs> everything's in that first week and we just have the best time in that that second one. And in, in the village, like you said, there's McDonald's. Are you like paying for that stuff? Well, so what happens? You just go to a counter at McDonald's, you go, I want this, and then they hand it to you, walk out. Yeah. Oh my God. <laughs> I'm telling you. the vending that. machines, you just walk up, push a button, it comes out. And it's 24 hours. <laughs> we need to get fistball in the Olympics. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> we're, uh, we're running a state uh, stateside for fistball. It's an international sport. It hasn't quite made the Olympics yet, but I am well, trying maybe. to compete for Australia. That isn't, is one um, isn't e-games in the Olympics? Yeah. Like, yeah we could, I mean, that maybe, could be you. Yeah, I could Anything goes. And baseball's back, so. Well, can't play baseball. <laughs> yeah. So we're hoping to teach ourselves how to do other sports. <laughs> There'd be some big dogs rolling around in the Olympic villages. Mm -hmm. Like people that spring to mind are like the dream team. Yeah. In, uh, is that just like, hey, what's up? Hey, like, hey, hey, LeBron. Hey, um, hey so Cody, what's going on? They don't actually stay in the village. 
So they stay out of the village. They're too big to be in the village. They would get hounded. They'd never sleep. People right. would be stalking them, all right, those sorts right, of right, things. Right. So they stay out of the village. They do come in to visit and we were actually really lucky in the 2012 games. Our staging camp was in Manchester and they were staying at the same hotel as us. So our dining rooms are next to each other, just passing them in the hallway, getting in the lift with them. Classic. Just Mind blown. And what's like, it like? Is that those people? Like yeah, LeBron, Kobe? Yeah, yeah. Who else is in there? Like what? Um, CP3 2016 was Kevin Durant and Clay Thompson. Great. Like all the guys that. Massive. Men it was just. A, it was a very good team. Men. It wasn't. Melt, they, yeah. didn't, they didn't send like their second squad the like, like the World no, Cup. This gone. The 2012 and 2016 was, was amazing. But That's unique. Like you're talking about like it's no big deal. Like it's unique that you're rolling Well, this is what I say to people is that, you know, we see these, we see our idols on TV and we idolize them and put them on a pedestal. But when you actually meet them and shake their hand, get a photo, have a conversation, like they're the most normal human Mm. beings. And I think that is a big misconception where people go wrong in treating athletes like they're invincible and that they should be put on a pedestal and, held to different standards than everyone else. But when it comes down to it, we're all human and we're seeing that in the media with the whole mental health side of things is that we are seeing our athletes struggle now. We are seeing them come out and speak about it. So for me, meeting these incredible humans, you know, you've got um, Kevin Love, I think it is, Yeah, has a charity. He's got a mental health charity and he's educating kids and creating curriculums for them um, to better themselves. So they've used their struggles and they've used their um, status to create something really beautiful instead of just resting on being like, I'm the best in the world, nothing can touch me, and then just retiring and going living on a boat somewhere. <laughs> so it's it's really humbling and I love those experiences. And I always tell them in a classroom, I'm like, I've met Kobe Bryant. <laughs> he sat on my couch with a cheeseburger. <laughs> and people lose their mind. But it's it's crazy because they all started somewhere and they're all just ridiculously good at what they do. But it definitely doesn't make them any less human. Boy, oh boy. Uh, this one's a big one. Shannon Worrell, great guest, one of our greats. Almost out of nowhere, a big wave surfer is Shannon. Um, he's seen some things. One of those things is a live great white attack. Uh, let's hear the story. It's abalone diving down in Esperance, um, and it's pretty remote. Like the you know the kind of venues that we're diving in, you you know driving a tractor out for an hour and a half down a dirt road, towing a you know, 30-foot catamaran, beach launching, living in a caravan for a month at a time at remote locations. You know, right. that's that's the kind of environment that we were ab-diving in. You know, when you're ab-diving, you have a boat, then you have compressed air and there's a reel with a hose that goes down and then there's a diver attached, you know, that's getting his air punched down through the hose. And it's not commercial diving where you have comms to the surface. It's kind of, you know... A little bit more old school, not as technical. If you want to tell someone what's going on down at the bottom, you grab the hose, their air hose, and you pull it. You know, when you right. a certain amount of pulls is a certain certain amount of signals, right. yeah, as to what the heck what the heck's going on. There was this one day we'd been out at this location, yeah, it's about 120, 130 k's east of Esperance. Been for a week, haven't seen anyone. And then old mate from South Australia, uh, Greg Pickering pulled up alongside us and got his caravan set up and we were stoked to see another ab diver, you know, pretty much. Jumped in the water, I was in my first dive for the day um, and Greg and his boat were probably, I don't know, they might have been 500 metres away, maybe a little bit less. And then I'm underneath and I've got these emergency pulls on on my hose and then instantly I'm going, okay, well, you know, either my air supply is going to get cut off so I need to do an emergency ascent or there's something there that is... You know, you need to get out of the water for. Right. And so you ascend really quickly. And as as you're ascending, I like to spin so you can surfboard, sorry. So you can see what's going on, you know, just in case something's going to hit you. Um, And then as I was coming up, I've heard like this low low noise and water uh, noise travels really far underwater. So you can hear boat motors. And I was like, Greg's boat is real close. And so we've 
I've got up on the deck and as soon as I've hit the deck, um, Rue has gone, Greg's been hit. And I was like, oh, holy shit, how bad is it? Was it because you're hoping it's a bronzy at that stage? You're just going, oh, I hope it's a, a bronze whaler shark. Sorry, mm. smaller. They still get big, yeah. but it's not a white. Like as soon as you've had dealings with whites, it's, um, it's just a different kettle of fish. They're a different animal. And so I was like, is it a bronzy? And he goes, I don't know. I didn't see him. And I've looked up and Greg's boat's probably about, I'd say, half a K in front of us, hammers down, heading back to where we launched the boats. And then we've just started going for it as well. I've jumped on the sat phone, made a call to go at the processor place. Um, and I've just gone, hey, Greg's been hit. Uh, get a chopper. You know, all the questions get asked. How bad is it? I don't know. I haven't assessed it yet. Blah, blah, blah. Let you know when we know. Just get a chopper, you know. <clears throat> Got a call halfway back. We're 15, 20 minutes, you know, back to where we'd launch the boats. And it's like, hey, you're not getting a chopper. <laughs> they don't exist. They're in the movies, mate. <laughs> Fuck off. <laughs> this is up to you guys. Right. It's desperate. It's oh, like, you yeah, know. I'm dumb as well because I was assuming there was a chopper. Yeah, so, so did I up until just then. <laughs> and it's like, just wait a minute. Okay, this changes the game a little bit. Um, so then we got back to where the boats pulled in and Callum was on the boat and you could just see his face. Uh, his face is 18 or 19 and he was just white, you know, and it was like, ah, oh, here we go. And I've jumped on, pulled up alongside his boat, and I've jumped in, walked onto the front of the boat, and there's Greg, and, you know, there's just blood everywhere through the boat. He's, you know, st and straight away it was like, oh, shit, it's a white, you know. It's not a it's not a bronzy that he's been hit by. Right. And he'd actually, he was down on the bottom of the ocean, and this thing came front on, and it had engulfed him up to his waist, it was radical. The fact that his flamen was in one piece at the time was just radical. But <clears throat> and the only reason he was in one piece is because we wear these lead vests. Um, it's almost like a a vest that you pull over and it disperses the weight, so you can spend a long time in the water. Anyone who's done some diving or free diving, normally you have a weight belt that just goes around your belly. But when you spend extended periods of time, that really hurts your back. So we. We have these things and it's a lead vest that covers all your torso. Mm. And on the back, we have a bailout bottle, like a spare air bottle sometimes. So this thing had come down, grabbed him, but he wasn't in two pieces because of that equipment that we have on or most abdivers have on. Um, but as you can imagine, somehow he's got himself out of it. But their teeth... Um, I don't know if you've touched white teeth before, but they're like razor blades. They're triangles and you just touch them and they're razor blades. So on, on the way out, he just got obliterated everywhere. Um, I don't know how graphic how graphic uh, here, but he's kind of, you know, as the thing was chomping, it split him from his chin all the way through his nose, up through his eye. So his face was kind of... Open. Splayed, yeah. And then he had kind of a flip top head as well. Um, looks like the, yeah, like an Indian had kind of taken to him kind of thing. And Callum had got him together as best he could. He'd got some gaffer tape and a shirt, and put, gave him his haircut back, put his flip-top head back on a little bit and kind of, so it was pretty radical. He had like a great white tooth snapped and it was embedded in his eye socket. <laughs> so he had this tooth like snapped in his thing and we were there and we just, you know, the visuals were pretty radical. And then it was like, holy shit, there's no chopper. We are 120 k's in the middle of nowhere, an hour down a four-wheel drive track. We've got to deal with this now and try to keep him alive. And yeah, I have it. Like he's, he's alive. At this he's, he's alive. We ended up keeping him alive. So this is wow. actually a really good story. So then we're on the beach and we got two boats and we got three guys and you know, pulling a boat out of the water with two guys is hard enough. You know, let alone two boats and you know. So then we've got his boat. We've put it on a car and we've actually got the boats out of the water quickly. Um, you know, we've quite often we decompress on oxygen when we come out of the boat to lower our surface times. So I've 
Greg, he's conscious at this time and, you know, our rev meters are all just, you know, out of control. He's managed to kind of groan oxygen, which I didn't think of straight away either. And so we've got a reg and we've regulator, you know, it's what you breathe on. Mm. And I'll put it in a, in a place where his mouth kind of was to, and then he's started breathing on that, which was really good. So then he had O2 going into him at least. And then we've made the decision that we shouldn't lift him up because it looked like if we were going to lift him up, he was kind of going to fall. Like yeah. he, he had some massive wounds on his back and, you know, across his neck and all the rest of it. So our camp was probably a K and a half up the road. So we've driven a K and a half up the road. And I, I know a lot more medically now after that experience than I did before. And I was like, he's going to die. You know, so we've got to make him as comfortable as we can, but we've got to give it a crack on the way out. So we stopped in at the camp, um, made the decision to stop and get some pillows and sleeping bags out of the caravans um, just to pad him up for the trip because it's an hour full drive track getting towed down on a boat, you know. Right. And so I spent the next hour and a half pushing my knees or pushing my hands, the legs against the side of the boat, kind of, holding a couple of wounds and that to get a bit of pressure on and yeah. And we managed to get him out pretty much stem the bleeding. Um, docs told us afterwards, they were mere flesh wounds. <laughs> <laughs> no, no arteries were cut. You know, there wasn't any yeah, gushing wow. blood, but there was enough going on that, you know, it half was, a head. Yeah. It was, I think it was probably visually a lot worse than what it was technically medically um but that didn't help me much of the time so I, I didn't i didn't have enough information as far as i had enough but you know i didn't think he was going to survive it was radical because i was wondering when you tell that story like how the fuck do you know the shark come and munched him because again i thought that story finished with greg didn't make it but you've asked him what happened when the shark took him well yeah well he didn't see it coming or anything he was just on the on the ground head down knocking off abalone and then he just remembers being black everything being black and then he was 15 meters underwater too at the time when he got hit and on the bottom we we always thought it was mid-water on the top when we were going to get hit um but it was on the bottom you know and then all of a sudden we were just going oh, this sucks we thought the danger zone was just there <laughs> yeah. you know right. um and i couldn't go in the water after that um that was radical but we kept him live they took him up to perth um we flew up to perth a week later and saw him in hospital and it was one of the best things we could have done because from seeing him how he was mm. to in a hospital bed and functional, it was like, oh, this is awesome. I genuinely did not know if Shannon's mate was dead or alive about 80% into that story. That's one of the great stories we've ever had on the podcast and Shannon was a great guest. If you didn't catch that full episode, I'd highly recommend going back and having a listen. Let's go to the world game soccer. Tash Rigby, captain of the Perth Glory women's side, spent some time with Sam Kerr. You may remember her from her heroics uh, from the Matildas in the World Cup this year or basically being the greatest women athlete running around uh, any sport in the world right now. Let's hear Tash's thoughts on her time with Sam Kerr. So at that time, Sam Kerr isn't the global superstar she is now. She's in soccer realm, maybe. She's a good player. She's a captain of Perth Glory. But where she is now, I would say that Australia's greatest athlete, yeah. man or woman. Love that, yes. So you walking into a locker room with her at the time, she would still be – you'd be starstruck a little bit, right? Yes, and this moment sticks out to me so much. She, I played with her when I was playing state. I was training in and around her and I was at a camp with her. And back then I think everyone still knew, like everyone was like, no, she's going to be right. the next big thing. And I just remember her because she was like so cheeky and so fun and she used to call me Blue Eyes. And this was when we were like 15. And then I walked into the change room and I was like, no way she'll remember me. Like I was literally a blip. And she saw me and she's like, blue eyes. And she like comes up to me. She like puts her arm around me. She introduces me to the team. And I was like, that is leadership, right? Like mm. I felt like so seen and I felt like I was able to like be myself and flourish. And like I was still so scared. But I was like, oh, well, I know someone here as the captain. And she's yeah, pretty and like she's got my back. well known and she's got my back. And that like shows to me that's like, 
and such an important leadership trait to me, like humility. Like she, no ego, no, you know, like she just came up to me and just like welcomed me in and that, that just was such a big moment for me. Sam Kerr widely reported and covered and journalized and all of that sort of stuff, but it's good to see that she still remembers her old teammates in Tash and a great little story there. Let's go to Dan Ryan, coach of the West Coast Fever here in Perth. Um, he's got an incredible story. If you haven't listened to this one, you probably want to go back and have a listen to the full chat, but uh, he was an Australian representative in the men's netball Australian side. But he speaks about his time between coaching jobs. He'd been overseas, hadn't gone the way he'd liked to have gone. And he went hiking on the Camino Trail, which is one of the great hiking experiences known to mankind. He found himself out there. This is a good one. Such a big decision to make, but I'm so glad that I did it. And it really just demonstrated to me, you know, if you want something bad enough, find a way to make it happen, no matter how tough it can get. Mm. At what point did you go and do the Camino Trail in Spain? When did you do this? Yeah, so I did that um, after the World Cup. So it was August, September or September, October of 2019. So we're in the right areas. Right areas. Mm. Yeah. And I was still struggling. I reckon I was still trying to come to terms with what had happened at Adelaide, accepting the fact that I wasn't making money and everything that I was, was coming in was going straight out. So... You know, as a 35-year-old at the time, I'm like, I can't be living paycheck to paycheck. Like, that was really stressing me out. Yeah. Um, and I'm like, where is the path forward? I was probably still struggling with little moments here and there of just some anxieties and depressions off the back of the Adelaide experience. But as soon as I did the Camino and finished the Camino, or actually I got one week into the Camino, and I clearly remember on day seven, you get all these weird, wonderful experiences on the Camino, but it was... Day seven, where my backpack felt like it had nothing in it, which for me was like this symbolism of I had let it all go. Like that first week was just letting all the stress, the disappointment, the struggle of the past two, three years behind. And so I was walking away from it and the rest of the Camino for the next 700 kilometres. So what is, what is it? Is it a giant walking trail? And you, are you out there by yourself or are you with people? Yeah, so it's it's a it's a world-famous pilgrimage, they call it, and people walk for many different reasons. And you start uh, in a little village called Saint-Jean-Pierre-de-Port in the foothills of the Pyrenees in France, and you basically walk for 35 days, 800 kilometres, all the way through France, through Spain, uh, through the countryside, and you end up in Santiago which is a really, you know, famous part of, of Spain. And then if you want to, you can work, walk for an extra three days, which takes you to Finisterre, which is what they call the end of the world. So you basically walk to this lighthouse that overlooks the ocean and you can't see a thing in sight. Like wow. it's, it's amazing, but you do it by yourself. Like a lot of people will do it just by themselves for lots of different reasons. Um, and the experiences and the journey you go on whilst walking with the, all you have is a backpack of your possessions. Yeah. All you have is time in your own head, in your own thoughts. And then you get blessed with all of these unbelievable experiences of walking alongside or meeting different people from all over the world. And you have these most profound, in-depth conversations with people that you would not even have with your most loved and cherished people in your life. And the fact that you're all there walking for a reason that is very different but you're all bound by this journey that you're kind of going on. So some of the people I met and the conversations I had um, were so timely and like meant to be that just made the experience unbelievable. But, but like I said, after the first week, I'd let everything go and the next four weeks were just walking towards this kind of new version or this new energy that I was kind of creating. So it was amazing. The best thing I've ever done, the best experience of my life, um, and it just goes to show the importance of mindfulness and nature to get real clarity on what's most important. Dan Ryan there, I've always wanted to do one of those hikes, maybe not the Camino. Kokoda Trail is right up there on my bucket list. Um, you know, perhaps the same sort of thing, getting away from phone, social media, all that sort of stuff. Right, netball to boxing, world champion, Sean Porter. Uh, this was a this is a great chat. One that I, I didn't know enough about until I researched. Um, his insights, his honesty, um, you know, the sort of person he was, I found him really interesting to chat to. Uh, he spoke about the transition of being an elite athlete, the high, you know, as high as you could possibly get, world champion, uh, into life after boxing. 
have a listen. Do you talk about what I miss mm. in, 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 on fight night and things like that? Sure. I miss before the fight and I miss after the fight. Mm. Before the fight, you arrive. And I don't, I don't know about other fighters, but this is how I feel. Always felt. When you arrive, they got you in like a shuttle or big SUV or whatever. And we jump out. I mean, we are a team. We're we're an army. We're soldiers, and everybody's right behind me. You know what I mean? My dad is literally right behind my shoulder, and then the rest of the team just follows the cameras. They, they got the cameras on you, and for me, it was always that I have arrived moment. You know what I mean? Mm. And then <clears throat> you go into the locker room, and when that door closes to the locker room, it's like everything that matters closes off. And the only thing that matters is this fight, this opponent, this game plan, these these people in here, my coaches, my team. And if we got loved ones, th those are the only people that matter. Everything, you close everything. You go out there to the ring, you put it down, you hope you had the best night of your life. And then when you leave the room or you leave the arena and you come back into that, 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 that room, mm. now everybody else is in there waiting on you. You know, the family is there, the close friends that are there, the pastor is there, everybody's there waiting on you. And it's it's that I have arrived moment again, you know. And that's what I miss most about the professional boxing game because to me those were the moments that I enjoyed wholeheartedly without anything else. In the ring, you enjoy hitting somebody else. Yeah, from time to time you you know you you make a slip and you you land a good punch. You like, man, I got you right there. Like you know, let's keep it going, you know. You can't can't reflect on that too long. Let's keep it going, you know. You enjoy some moments, but it's happening so fast. It's going so fast. That that arrival moment and that that arrive that second arrival moment back into the ring or back into the room, win, lose or draw. Those were the, the best moments for me. Those are the ones I missed. Sean Porter there. He had a massive cold flu thing going on. He was all blocked up. You might be able to hear it a bit, but he was disappointed with how his voice sounded. I found it a privilege to chat to someone right at the top of their game, a world champion in their sport. You don't get to do that very often, so that was epic for me. Let's go from boxing to pole vault. Liz Parnov, Australian uh, survivor winner. We speak about that, and that was a full circle, you know, life circle moment for her in terms of tying uh, post career into her athletic career. But she was a two time Olympian, one of those Tokyo, uh, the COVID games. She speaks about the conditions and facilities at the Tokyo Games in the Olympic Village. What's the games like? What's the Tokyo Games like 2021 compared to 2012? So shit. <laughs> Cardboard beds. Am I allowed to swear? Yeah, yeah you've already been swearing. But oh, you're fuck allowed. It. You're allowed <laughs> what was so bad about it? All of it. It was all just so bad. Were the bed were the beds as advertised, like genuine cardboard? Literal cardboard. Holy like our apartment was a cardboard room <laughs> was like pretty much cardboard. Like it was just like plaster. The walls weren't even finished. There was like wires running through everything. It looked like they'd gotten sheets of like that. A chip rock. Yes. Yeah. And just like <laughs> nail gunned. Nail gunned <laughs> slats. And that was it. We had, there were six of us. One, two. Yeah. No, there were seven of us in one apartment with one bathroom. What? A mini fridge. No TV, no couch. Um, the beds were like. Sounds like prison. It literally was. Like, I'm not well, it's joking. It's not literally prison. <laughs> it felt like it. <laughs> It felt like seven people with a mini bar and one bathroom. <laughs> I mean, like, and like we're talking Japanese bathrooms, the ones where like they plonk a room inside, and it's like I'm hitting my head on the roof of the shower <laughs> with no ventilator, like no wind. Like it was disgusting. Wow. I'm so sorry to the AOC, but like it was just so bad. <laughs> a lot of people. Um, I, like we're talking about the fire festival, it being like similar to that mm. in that, you know, you go to this, you go there and it's like, a, it's just like a tent with like a, a mattress with wrapped in plastic. And they're like, this is your deluxe room. Essentially. Fire festival. This is your deluxe king and the, suite. And what, what the wasn't like the food, wasn't that like really awful, like a piece of bread with like a plastic cheese on it and stuff? Yeah. <laughs> How'd you compete? Better than I did in... London, which is great, but 
in my part of the qualifying, the rain came. And so I got rained out on my last attempt. So I didn't qualify for the final, but I cleared some bars, which was better than London. So like it was an improvement, but still like very much underdone, very disappointed. They like stopped the competition after my jumps because it started pissing down so bad, but they made me jump. Mm. And then everyone got pulled off the track. They waited like an hour or so until the rain stopped. They cleaned up all the rain, everyone dried off and then they continued the qualifying. And I was like, but I had to jump in the rain and you stopped. Like, excuse me. Is there some sort of like uh, appeal process? Well, I went to appeal, like I went to the manager of like the athletics team to appeal and then they came back and said, because you've left the field of play, like you've removed yourself, so we can't appeal it. Oh, my god! And I'm like, well, in case you wait, like put flubber in your you shoes. You can't appeal it or you just can't be bothered? Like which one is it? <laughs> but. Liz Parnoff there and cardboard beds. They sound absolutely horrific. Let's go from pole vault back to netball. Paige Hadley, captain of the Swifts, uh, a premiership player, but she speaks about her time in the 2022 Commonwealth Games and an injury that basically flipped her time in those games upside down. One thing that was a low point in Diamonds was obviously the Commonwealth Games. I did my calf um, just before it. So I literally... 2018? 2022. Did you? So I literally um, was was flying and I felt like um, the new coach had come in, Stacey Marinkovic had come in um, Early and I, about twenty, I think she came in twenty twenty. I didn't really play early in her under under her, but then I got an opportunity in I think it was twenty twenty one quad series and then a twenty twenty two quad series and played well and then kind of got that form in under her and then I got picked to go to the Commonwealth Games and I felt like oh yeah this is my moment like I'm firing like you're back I'm back <laughs> like she believes in me like she gave me the opportunity like yeah and then um, I was playing really well and then we had our last practice game before we were going to the village. And um, I was like, oh, my calf just like, I didn't feel anything go. I just felt like it felt tight. So I just came off and said to the physio, oh, it feels tight. She's like, oh, we'll get a scan or whatever. Anyway, that was like the hardest time because we had three reserves. So you had to like the Wednesday to say if Paige was in or out. And this is like Monday. And so like, oh, we need to get a scan. We get checked because we also need to make a call if you're going to go to the Commonwealth Games or if you're going to be ruled out. And I was like, oh, like, so it was just, and so you go into the village and everyone's running around berserk, you know, got the new bag, got this, did you see this? <laughs> We're like, Paige, you know you're going to scans. So I missed out on all of that hurrah because they sent me to off to a scan anyway. They said, oh, you've got kind of like a, you know, a bit of a strain, but like it's nothing really, like, you know, you should be good, but you could not be good because you're playing seven games in 10 days. So like, you may not be okay. I was like, oh, I guess it's your call, like, you know, and so they gave me every, every you know, second to try and get there and, it was so hard because, you know, like Jamie Lee was the reserve and so she's obviously sitting there going, you know, like I could actually be going into a Commonwealth Games and then mm. I'm sitting there going, oh, I could be pulled out here at the last second. And, you know, I was doing all these tests and it was getting better and they were like, yep, yeah, okay, we're going to give you a crack. And I was like, thank you. Like I, I just didn't know which way they were going to go. And anyway, so I, yeah, Stacey said, no, we believe that you're going the right direction and stuff. So I missed the first game and then I was on monitored load. So I played the second game and felt really good. And then that third game felt really great. The second quarter felt really great. And it was about a few minutes to go and I felt like someone had kicked me in the leg. And I was like, mm, that's the calf. That's the calf. Oh yeah. Yeah. And then I uh, turned around like, who kicked me? And then I was like, no. Nah. Anyway, so I obviously hobbled off. Um, and then I just knew that that was probably – that was going to be it. And we had spoken about that that's the risk. If I go out and play, that it could go. But I was willing to risk that to try and, you know, get through that tournament and try and be a part of it. And so whilst I was on this amazing journey of Com Games, I was also, like, fighting these obviously personal, like, how, how can I, like – I'm here. Like, why did this happen? Like, why me? Like, playing really well and then this calf – and I never really had calf issues. I never had calf issues and it literally just went bing, like – Mm. And I remember going to the change room at half time and going into the back room and obviously the girls were talking and he's just like, what do you want to do? And I was like, no, I'm going out there. Like, I'm no, it's fine. Like, we're going out there. So I went out there and supported her and she obviously knew, like, the physio was crying. She knew that obviously that was me done and, you know, she'd obviously been trying to get me back and stuff. And, um, yeah, it was really tough. But it was such a weird thing because all I wanted to do was 
I think for me, I went into that, okay, well, they cannot lose this gold medal because I would feel like it was my fault because I've just gone and got injured. They've risked putting me in there and then they've gone and played ten, you know, seven or eight games more load without me being there because yes. at the time you can't swap people once this tournament starts. So that's it. Like they were playing. They're carrying. With, yeah, they're carrying without yeah. me. And I was like, oh, we cannot lose this because otherwise I would be like, oh, it's because they took Paige Hadley and she was injured and blah, blah, blah. And I was like, oh, I can't live with that. And so I was, I was like, no. Nah. I went to my room, had about half an hour of like sobbing to myself and I was like, no, nah, that's it. And then so um, the other mid-quarters, all I was doing was like watching PA on like Jamaica and England and like giving like pointers. And on the bench I was just like so loud because I, all I could do was give my energy to there. I didn't have to worry about warming up or being ready just in case I was going on. I could just waste my energy on like being in the moment and stuff. And yeah, I was just like, whilst I was devastated personally, I didn't get to be out, be out there playing in that whole tournament and especially the gold medal match. But to be a massive part of it and, you know, to have like Stacey, the coach, after go, like, I don't think we would have won that if, you know, if it wasn't for you and how you put yourself, you know, put your issues aside and was there for the team. And I think the other middies could just play with freedom because I think, I don't know if you ever felt like it, but like, you know, when you're under the pressure of like performing and then someone can take your spot, like who's going to have the beer, like where they didn't have to worry about that. I was just there supporting them and stuff. And to win that gold medal was just the best feeling ever. And I think whilst I would have loved, obviously, the fairy tale to me to be on that court and be playing it, I think, um, yeah, it was just the most surreal thing to be a part of it and obviously gone through that journey. And, um, yeah, so whilst it was like the down, it was also the highest of high. It sounds like a full circle kind of thing, yeah. right? If you talk about your big injury to ACL when you're a young player and just even just hearing you speak about it, it was about you and yeah. getting your knee right and getting back out there and yeah. getting taken by your parents to physio. You do your calf and it's not as serious an ACL, but – it sounds like maturity-wise, you're able to switch pretty quickly into not being about you. Yeah. And even though, even though you were worried about the impact you'd have not being out there, um, the full circle moment is like the ability to go right. It's not about me, almost. Yeah. Am I yeah. right? Oh, absolutely. And I think it was that point of like I had that moment of like crying because you know I guess it's something you dream of as a kid to go oh, to com games. And it's selfish to a point, right? Like yeah, you're you, like. That's what I've dreamed of, yeah. and you're like this close to it, and it gets ripped under, you know, ripped from underneath you. And but then I was like, nah, like I cannot have this team win silver and be like, oh, it's because they carried an injury player. Like the players were under fatigue, they were too loaded. You know, the mid quarters looked fatigued, they they were tired. I was like, nah, like we have to win this. I was like doing everything I could to like, you know, make sure that they were ready to go. They were informed. They had their strategies down. Like they were pumped. And so I just 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 being able to watch that gold medal match and see them just like because we obviously lost to Jamaica in the rounds yep. and then played them again in the grand final and to see them just like push on and push on, I, I was just like just stoked. And I remember I, try, I tried to run on the court at the end because <laughs> they, they strapped my calf up because they were like, you know, just in case you got to run on after the end. And I went to run, I was like, I can't run. So I'm like hobbling, one girl's like carrying me. I was like, oh, God. I was like, I thought it was going to be like the fairy time when I get to run onto the pack. But I was like, I cannot run here. And I got one girl under me like pulling me along. I was like, oh, God, it wasn't, it wasn't as pretty as I thought it was going to be. Injured players missing out on medals, on cups, whatever you like to call it. it as an athlete, there's, there's nothing worse. But to be able to do it the way Paige did it, you hear it in her voice, it was pretty incredible. Last but not least, Timmy Franklin, our main man. He's on the road still, and I hope he's listening to this. Shout out, Timmy. I know it will be. He listens to all our stuff. Uh, keep running, baby. This man is running around the world. Not, And I'm not talking, oh, I'll just jump out of the car every now and then. Every single day, he's putting together over 50 kilometers a day uh, to run his way around the world, trying to do it the quickest uh, anyone's ever done it. He's, he's kind of on track. He should be in Perth sometime soon. It'd be great to greet him here on the shores of Australia. Let's let's hear about it. How do you run around the world, Tim? What's the route like? What, what, what? So you start in Brisbane. How do you plan that route, or is it a set route? No, you can you can choose you can choose whichever way you want to go. There are certain rules, so I have to I have to pass every line of longitude in one direction. Um, and that obviously includes like crossing oceans, so flying or boating across an ocean. Um, I have to run on a minimum of four continents. And for a continent to count, I have to run a minimum of 3,000 kilometres on that continent and finish or start or touch um, one side of the continent within a kilometre of the ocean and then finish on the other side of the continent within a one kilometre 
um, leeway of the other ocean. Wow. Who sets these rules? Was it just the first person that did it? Yeah, I think, I, I think it's relatively arbitrary. Um, <laughs> uh, uh, there's, a, there's a World Runners Association, uh, Phil, Phil Essam, a, guy, a gentleman that actually lives in Canberra. He's the, the president of the association, and the only way to become a member is to complete the run. So there's seven members. Um, and, yeah, so they've, 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 set, the, they've set the rules. Um, yeah, so that's – yeah, there are other ones, but they're the, they're the sort, of, sort of key – key ones that you've got to, you got to worry about. What a club, seven-man club, <laughs> and you've got to go and run 27,000 kilometres. the hardest to get... thing to ever do. Correct. So <laughs> do you know if the guys who have done it, do they hang out? Do they, do they see each other? Do they speak to each other? Is there actually correspondence? Matching blazers? <laughs> yeah, I'm going for some sort of master's blazer setup if I manage to get this done. I want something pretty serious, to be honest. Um, uh, they, they, they talk, they've all spoken to me. Um, wow. and, 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 and when I've asked them some questions, but I don't, I mean, they're scattered throughout the world. There's American and Aussie, two French or Frenchmen and a French woman, uh, a couple of other Euro- Europeans amongst them all. So, so they're spread out far and wide. Um, but yeah, yeah, I don't know. Yeah. I don't know if there's a quarterly board meeting. Let's get him, Timmy. Keep going, mate. You're absolutely killing it. That's it. Done and dusted for this week's show. Next week, we'll be back to programming as usual, I believe. If we're not, don't hold me that accountable, but I believe we are back. Uh, Bigger and better, ready for the year ahead, 2024. Slap it in the face. See you later. Um, We've got a huge year coming up on Backchat. Uh, We're going to do more live, uh, more live crosses, more player interviews, um, Hammer's going to eat more nuggets. Dan's going to butcher more emails. I'm going to do whatever I do. I don't know what that is. We're, we're going to have a massive year. Might even have two episodes a week. I don't know. Just mate, You might have heard it here first. You definitely did. Make sure you tell your friends, tell your mum, tell your dad, tell your brothers, sisters. You know what to do. Spread the love. Backchat Studios, Backchat Podcast. Subscribe, watch, listen, all that jazz. See you next week. I'm looking forward to it. I hope you are too.